set free And Lord give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor Jim Jarrett Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. If you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and a turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue working our way through this chapter, and I'll be reading this morning verses 15 through 23, so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, if you'll follow along now as I begin in verse 15, so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Imagine receiving a letter from a trusted Christian friend, you know, someone who was a mentor or perhaps someone you received counsel from, someone who knows you and, and loves you. And the letter tells you that the person has been praying for you and even tells you the content of those prayers. And perhaps the letter speaks of a prayer for you to have patience, which would suggest that uh, in his or her view, this is something that you lacked or need. And perhaps the prayers were for contentment or zeal for the things of God, which would suggest that you may be discontented or distracted and, and perhaps lazy. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, we have Paul writing to tell the Ephesian believers that he had been praying for them, and not only that, he tells them what he had been praying for them. And this was a church that Paul was, was very close to. Remember, Paul planted the church, ministered there for three years. And so he knew many of the people, and he, and he loved them dearly and cared for them, and so of course he would pray for them. Of course he would. He prayed for the Ephesians church just as he prayed for all of the churches that he had ministered in. And so that brings up a question for us this morning. Let me ask you, do you pray for our church? And if you do, 
What do you pray for our church? The verses in our text focus on Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus. And Paul could have prayed many things as a matter of priority for this church. I mean, it was one of the great centers of the Roman Empire, a city known for its devotion to the goddess Diana. It was home to the Roman emperor cult, so emperor worship was very prevalent. It was also home to, or it was a center of paganism. It was steeped in the occult and magical arts. It was full of gross immorality and perverted idolatrous practices. From the the perspective of a first century Christian living in Ephesus, the city was a hostile environment. And the Christians in Ephesus had experienced opposition and persecution. And and what does Paul say? He's praying for them. Well, we'll see in our study. (laughs) But when you struggle to know what to pray for yourself, your loved ones, fellow believers in our church, Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 is a model to follow. Because in it, we are shown God's priorities, God's great priorities for the life of his church. And since we're going to be talking about prayer, we should define it so that we all understand what we're talking about. So what is prayer? Well, very simply, prayer means speaking to God. God speaks to us through the words of Scripture. We respond to him in the words of prayer. And prayer, of course, is one of the most important activities Uh, of the Christian life. In fact, prayer should be as natural for the Christian as breathing. In fact, you could say our prayers are like breathing, and so when praying is neglected, we soon become spiritually sick. While he was imprisoned for his faith in Bedford, England, uh, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote another little book published now as Praying with the Spirit and with Understanding Also. And in it, this is how he describes healthy prayer. This is what Bunyan said. Healthy prayer is a sincere, fervent, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. That's a great definition of prayer. And that's the kind of prayer we find here and elsewhere in the Apostle Paul's letters. Now this section in Ephesians follows Paul's 203-word sentence of praise and worship in verses 3 to 14 for the amazing unlimited blessings believers have in Jesus Christ. Blessings that amount to our personal inheritance of all that, that belong to him. And now in the remainder of the chapter in verses 15 to 23, Paul moves from blessing God to offering thanksgiving and prayer for his readers. And like the previous section, this section also comprises one long sentence. It's actually 169 words in the Greek. And here Paul prays that the Ephesian believers will grow in their knowledge of God And come to know and understand all that is theirs in Christ. In verses 15 through 16a, we see Paul's thanksgiving. In verses 16b through 19a, we see Paul's petition. And in verse 19b through 23, we see Paul's praise. And and we're not going to get through all of these today. But let's start now looking at Paul's thanksgiving in verses 15 through 16a. In verse 15, Paul begins by saying, For this reason. Or some translations may say, therefore. The ESV says, for this reason. 
Well, what reason? What prompts Paul's thanksgiving and prayer? I mean, what, what, what is the reason? Well, the reason is because of the incomparable blessings of Christ listed from verses 3 through 14. And so for this reason, that is because of what Paul is saying, because of what I've just said about God gathering his chosen, redeemed, and sealed people together under Christ, because of this reason, or for this reason, and he says, because I have heard. So Paul tells us here that he had heard something about the Ephesian church. He had had an incredible ministry in Ephesus. I mean, this was a church he was close to. But when he wrote this letter, five or so years had passed since he was there, and he depended now on news to keep him up to date on what was happening to these precious believers. And someone may may wonder, well, how in the world could he have heard about them? He's a prisoner in Rome. Well, that's true. But we have to understand that prisoners could receive letters and they could receive visitors. And over the the period of time of his imprisonment, Paul had received both letters and visitors. And Paul had heard something about the Ephesians uh, through either a visit or a letter, and what he heard encouraged him. It encouraged him. But in saying that, we have to remember that the Ephesian church was not a perfect church because there is no such thing. And they had their problems. Later in the letter, he instructs them on how to handle false doctrine, and he has to urge them to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, along with all malice, and to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ had forgiven them. But these things didn't change how Paul viewed them. Paul wasn't wearing rose-colored glasses when he looked at the Ephesian church. I mean, he was absolutely aware of their problems. But neither was he blind to the work of God's grace being done in and through them by the Lord. And you know, sometimes we hear of faults or supposed faults in Christians and churches, and because of this, we just write them off and reject them as being no good, whether it's true or not, based simply upon what we have heard. And when we do this, we neglect to see the good that God is doing, and we neglect to thank God for that. But even though Paul was aware of of their problems, his response to what he heard about in Ephesus was to pray for them. He looked for God's grace at work in them, and he found plenty of reasons for gratitude. And let let me remind us all of the need to recognize grace in others. Because it, it is very easy to be critical of others, because that comes to us naturally in our, in our, our sinful flesh. But it takes a mature believer to recognize grace in others. And so let me ask you another question. Do you wear the glasses of grace or the glasses of righteousness or self-centeredness? You see, we, we must learn to thank God in our prayers for evidences of grace in God's people, namely, faith and love. And let's also encourage other believers when we see traces of grace in their lives. And so our text indicates that Paul received news concerning the spiritual state of his readers. And what is it that he heard? Well, look back at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And so Paul heard two things about the believers in Ephesus that encouraged his heart. First of all, he said, I have heard of your faith 
in the Lord Jesus. And in thanking God for their faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul is, of course, praising God for their saving faith. And they had been saved by grace through faith and not by their own doing. Their boast was in Christ alone, and that was certainly something to thank God for. But, but here, Paul is primarily giving thanks for their practical faith. They had not only come into the Christian life by faith, they were continuing in it. They were still growing in their faith. It had not been some passing emotion that had come and gone. They had continued believing. They had continued as Christians. I mean, they not only rested their salvation, but also their everyday life on Christ. I mean, the Ephesians believed Christ would take care of them through thick and thin. And although they lived in a hostile environment where Christianity was marginalized and, and Christians suffered persecution, they held firmly to their faith. And this was not a blind faith, but rather a specific faith in the Lord Jesus. The Ephesian Christians didn't confess the pagan goddess Diana as God or Caesar as Lord. No, their Lord, their God was Jesus. I mean, their faith was not simply an intellectual affirmation of Christian belief about Jesus, but more importantly, it was an intimate, personal relationship with him who provided them with grace and strength to survive and even thrive in an, in the, in the, uh, in an ungodly world and in an ungodly city. But this isn't all that Paul heard about the believers in Ephesus. Because where there is genuine faith, where there is self-abandoning trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will inevitably be love toward all his people. The second thing Paul heard about the Ephesian believers was their love. If you'll look back at verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and, he says, your love toward all the saints. These Ephesian believers had love toward all the saints. And of course, saints refers to all believers, all those who have been set apart by God, for God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so coupled with their faith was their love for all the saints. They loved all their fellow Christians. You know, one commentator said, the reason this is so striking, of course, is that this is often not true in Christian circles. He observed, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Our surface Christianity arms us with what we think are proper prejudices and a rationale for criticizing those who fall short, keeping them at arm's length. Not so, he said, with the Ephesians. The word for love here is is far more than a feeling. It's far more than an attraction or an emotion. I mean, in the New Testament, true spiritual love is always defined as an attitude of selfless sacrifice. And that is why the word for love Paul uses here is agape, a selfless, sacrificial, volitional, purposeful love that results in generous acts of kindness done to others, even the unlovely. It's the very love of God himself. And the Ephesians had this love in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit because Paul tells us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5.5. 5. 
So the Ephesians had this love in their hearts, and they chose to exercise it toward one another. They actually lived out Jesus' new commandment. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. They live that out. To truly love one another, or to truly love another believer in the Lord, is to love him as the Lord loves him, which is genuinely and sacrificially, you know, just as Jesus loved us. Loving other Christians, whoever they are, means that we treat them as brothers and seek their their present and eternal good, even when it costs us to do so. John, writing in his first epistle in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, said, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the sort of love the Ephesian Christians had for all the saints. I mean, faith in Christ not only unites us with Christ, but it also brings us into the family of God, into the body of Christ, his, his church, which is made up of individual believers whom we are to love in the same way that Jesus loved and continues to love us. One man said, it should be our absolute conviction that if our Father in heaven has chosen and saved sinners and our Lord Jesus died for their sins and the Holy Spirit has indwelt them, then they are family, brothers and sisters, to be loved and cherished. And that is exactly right. That is exactly right. However, in saying that, we also have to say at the same time that this does not mean that we are are ever to ignore sin, doctrinal or moral, in any fellow Christian or Christian denomination. It does not mean that Christians should not speak or act boldly and, if necessary, confrontationally to fellow believers. I mean, Paul confronted Peter to his face because Paul said he was to be blamed there in Galatians 2.11. But it does mean that we are to bear with one another in love and forgive one another as the Lord himself has forgiven us. And this love for all the saints, this isn't merely a suggestion, and this isn't something that is presented to us as being optional. No, according to the Apostle John in 1 John 3.14, this kind of love is one of the essential marks of a genuine faith. John said in 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So without love, our faith cannot be considered genuine and true. Our faith is validated not merely by doctrinal correctness, but also by our love for others, especially other believers. 
And the Apostle John has some very strong words for professing Christians who say they belong to Christ but don't love their fellow Christian brothers and sisters. John said in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. I mean, where brotherly love is absent, the saving grace of God cannot be present. I mean, true faith cannot exist apart from true love. We cannot love the Lord Jesus without loving those whom he loves. I mean, in 1 John 5, 1, John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, every other believer. Paul is saying that genuine Christianity consists of faith and love. And therefore, as he said in Galatians 5, 6, what really matters is faith working through Loved ones, real Christians, genuine Christians always demonstrate growth in both of these dimensions, faith in Christ and love for all believers. And as one man said, observe here that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. Thus, when faith and love are paired together in a church, we have something for which to thank God. This, he said, is what Paul was doing. And because of the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, look what Paul says now in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. I mean, knowing that God is sovereign over salvation and having heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints, Paul was always able to thank God for their spiritual progress. And we should note the fact that Paul prays to give God thanks for them. He doesn't credit the Christians for their faith and love, but God. And D.A. Carson explains, apart from God's powerful transforming work, these people would never have been converted. Without God, they would never have begun to display the trust, faithfulness, and love now richly displayed in their lives. Therefore, whatever Christian virtues characterize them become the occasion for heartfelt praise to God. And Paul was, was grateful. He was grateful to God that his ministry among the Ephesians was still bearing fruit as their initial faith in Christ was, was growing and, and producing lives of faith. And, and that genuine faith was expressing itself in love toward one another, just a, a manifestation that their faith was genuine. And so because of the reports he had received, Paul says back in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says that he never ceased to give thanks for his Ephesian brothers and sisters, mentioning them whenever he prayed. It'd be easy to misinterpret Paul's first statement, I do not cease to give thanks for you, to mean that he is always, whenever, you know, every waking moment, thanking God for them. Well, that's not the case at all. His giving thanks is related to his prayers. That is, whenever he prays, he's in the habit of thanking God for the faith and love of the Ephesians. 
And so when we consider all the places throughout the Roman Empire where Paul had established churches, and we can, we can only imagine all the regions, cities, families, and, and individual believers that he must have included on his prayer list. I mean, this is something. Here was a man who was absolutely committed to prayer. Virtually every time he bowed before the Father in prayer, the name Ephesus was on his lips. And Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to know that he didn't cease to give God thanks for them, for their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints, remembering them in his prayers. In light of so much of what we see going on in the church today, it's interesting to take note of the fact that the things Paul believed are praiseworthy in a church, faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints, are, are much, much different from what excites many people who attend church today. Many today are, are excited to see worldly measures of success. Large attendance, large facilities, plenty of money, plenty of programs, etc., etc., and not that these things are bad in themselves but they are not the measure of success according to the Word of God. And what is far more important than any of these is what Paul prays for here. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. One commentator said, faith really is the essential thing, not numbers or programs, not budgets or buildings. It is by faith that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Of course, that's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. The Apostle John said, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's the essential thing, faith. Faith and love, because without faith and love, the church has absolutely failed in its mission. I mean, regardless of how many people attend or however much money or power it acquires, if the church is without faith and love, it has failed. But where there is genuine faith and love, the church is full of life, it is effective and powerful in spiritual terms, even when its numbers are small or when it's poor and looked down upon by the world. And sadly today, many pastors and church leaders are pressured to focus on priorities that do not build faith and love, but rather things that appeal to the social and worldly desires of people. And as a result, churches are often successful in becoming impressive to the world. But they are of very little use to Jesus because they have neglected God's word and prayer which are God's means for strengthening faith and love. What Paul constantly looked for in his churches, prayed for and thanked God to see, was faith and love. And if we look at Paul's prayers to other churches, we see just how consistent he was. He wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. To Philemon, he wrote, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, he prays, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for, another, for one another is increasing. Faith and love. 
I mean, there's a lesson here for us in, when it comes to, uh, or a lesson here for us in the priorities of Paul's prayer. I mean, if faith is what Paul values and prays for, and if, as Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing uh, through the word of Christ, then the preaching and teaching of God's word ought to be our great priority along with the ministry of prayer. And it's vitally important that we don't forget prayer. That's what we're looking at, a prayer. We can't forget prayer. I mean, many churches and many Christians act as though uh, truth were the only emphasis that matters. You know, just give us good preaching and sound doctrine and everything else will fall in line. Well, certainly, sound biblical doctrinal preaching is vitally important. It is absolutely essential, and it is, to, it is always to be the focal point of our corporate worship. But prayer is also vitally important. A church or individual Christians who, who, who get a steady input of truth, but little or no prayer, as one man said, is like a beautiful sports car without oil in the engine. It may look good and sound great for a while, but sooner or later it's going to break down because prayer is the oil that keeps us running. When we pray for others, I mean, we're asking the, uh, the Holy Spirit to strengthen them, to guide, convict, encourage, enable, and empower them. And that's why it's so important that we pray for one another, as Ephesians 1, 15 and 16 implies. I mean, Paul was always quick to tell Christians uh, how he thanked God for them and prayed for them. I mean, obviously, Paul believed that the greatest and best thing he could do for these believers was to pray for them. He didn't see that as an excuse to be inactive and do nothing else, which so often happens. But he knew that uh, one of the best things he could do before he ever did anything else was to pray for them. Let me ask you something. Do you share Paul's conviction? Do you express your love and care for the church, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for the leadership of the church by diligently and faithfully praying for them? You know, Spurgeon said, uh, in this life, no man can do me a greater good than to pray for me. Do you do that? Do you pray for the church, for other brothers and sisters in Christ, for the leadership? Because I have no doubt that our church life would absolutely be transformed if we regularly told other believers in the church that we thank God for them and prayed unceasingly for them. In verse 16, Paul tells the Ephesians that he thanked God for them unceasingly. He wanted them to know that he always gave thanks to God for them. And now in the second half of verse 16, Paul transitions from thanksgiving to intercession or petition. And the content of Paul's prayer actually begins in verse 17, but first he gives a description of the one who is the source of all divine blessings. Look at the rest of verse 16 and verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And so we notice, first of all, that Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Similar to his praise and worship in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul links blessings from God to his son, Jesus Christ, demonstrating the centrality of the son and the father's purposes. And second, he addresses God as the father of glory. And elsewhere, God is referred to as the God of glory, the Lord of glory, and, and the King of glory. But here, it's the Father of glory. Because he's the glorious Father, the Father of, of an infinite majesty. But he is also the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the God who didn't spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, the God who is rich in mercy and kind to sinners and has come near to us in his only Son. He is a God that we can come to with humble confidence that that he will hear us and answer us out of the overflow of his goodness and mercy. And we see in this that, that Paul did not approach God in, in prayer with a thoughtless, irreverent familiarity or, or flippancy. Rather, there is a profound reverence here. There is a sense of deep and expressible wonder. In the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Profound reverence, deep, inexpressible wonder, and, and we would be we would do well to imitate Paul in, in this respect. And Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and, and what did he pray for them? Well, knowing that the greatest needs of the people of God are spiritual, Paul prays, notice verse 17 again that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, whether spirit refers to the Holy Spirit and should be capitalized, as it is in the ESV, the NIV, the LSB, and the Christian Standard Bible, or whether it refers to the human spirit as it is in the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, and should be lowercased, that's debated. The majority of the men I read uh, had one opinion, and I'll share that with you in a minute. While spirit is used elsewhere to mean a, a human attitude, for example, a spirit of humility, this is better taken here as referring to the Holy Spirit, as I just mentioned the vast majority of the men I read agreed with. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. He is referred to as such in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And what about this spirit? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So he is the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. He is also the spirit of revelation or the spirit who reveals. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes in verse 9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit, spirit searches everything, even the deep, even the depths of God. And also, because of the word, the presence of the word revelation, 
it seems better to understand this as referring to the Holy Spirit because a a person could have a a spirit of wisdom. In other words, a, a wise spirit, you know, a wise disposition. But how could he have a spirit of revelation? Paul does not mean that believers are to do any revealing, but rather they are to be the recipients of revelation. And so it is best to see this as Paul praying that God would give them the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. But someone is going to ask, well, how is it possible that Paul prayed that the spirit of wisdom and revelation be given to those who already had received the spirit at conversion when he indwelt them and according to verse 13, had sealed them? That's a good question. We have to understand, since every believer is indwelt by the spirit and sealed by the spirit, Paul cannot be praying that his readers might receive the person of the Holy Spirit. They had already done that. Rather, the prayer is that they might receive a continually growing supply of wisdom and revelation from the indwelling Spirit. And the word revelation here essentially means the same as illumination. Paul is using the word revelation in the sense of the Spirit's illuminating work. I mean, that's one of the things the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does not reveal to us things left out of Scripture and or mystical clues hidden in the Scripture, but rather the plain truths he inspired in the Scripture, which without the Spirit's illumination, we would never know or understand. Paul's prayer is that the blessed Spirit who indwells them would make their spiritual vision clearer and stronger and keener, that God's divine power and love and greatness might be revealed to them far more fully. He's asking that the Ephesians be given deeper understanding of the meaning of the gospel and and a clearer insight into the word of God and to the will of God for their lives. And so he prays that God will give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Well, why or for what purpose? Look back at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of of revelation in what? The knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. The purpose in having this wisdom and revelation is the knowledge of him. In other words, that they may know him, that they might know God better. I mean, the church in Ephesus had many needs. I mean, in fact, their needs were great. And Paul could have prayed for many legitimate and necessary things for these believers. And if we were to make a list of the many needs of the church today, it wouldn't take much thought or take very long to come up with a long list. I mean, we live in a godless, unbelieving culture, so there's a great need for evangelism. I mean, there there is gross spiritual ignorance within the church, and so we need sound biblical preaching and teaching. Because of the growing worldliness evidence so evident in the church, we need more holiness. Besides these, as pagan ideologies impact our government and culture, we need to get involved in civic life. And of course, all of these things require money, so we need financial resources. And all of these needs are very, very real, and all of them would have been needed in Paul's day as much as in our own. But here in his prayer, Paul does not mention one of these things. Not one. Why? 
Because so very often what we as Christians think our great needs are may not be what our, our great needs really are. I mean, it's like going to the doctor. And you might think you need a particular medicine or a particular treatment or procedure, but the doctor sees that you actually need something quite different. Nowhere in his prayer does Paul ask the Lord to protect the Ephesians from persecution, to give them good health, or to provide them with employment, and not that it's wrong to ask for these things. We absolutely should. And no doubt there were, there were very many real needs, but Paul, in Paul's prayer for them, we see that he knew what their greatest need really was. He knew that their greatest need was to know God. To know God and to know him increasingly. And to some people this might seem, you know, very elementary. But let me ask you something. Is anything more important than knowing God better? You see, knowing God is always the greatest need of the church. Whereas one man writes, the final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God. In his study of Paul's prayers, uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson singles out the knowledge of God as the urgent need of the church. He writes, I would not want anything I say to be taken as disparagement of evangelism and worship, a diminishing of the importance of purity and integrity, a carelessness about, excuse me, disciplined Bible study. But there is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. We need, he says, to be turned away from our own felt needs, away from happiness and fulfillment as we understand them in worldly terms, and turn towards the glories and excellence, excellencies of God. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We are not captured by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. The great need of the church today, therefore, as of the church in the apostles' times, is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. And I couldn't agree more. And the word translated here as no does not refer to some abstract knowledge of God or some objective facts about him. This word no, epigenosis, speaks of a profound knowledge, not just academic, but relational knowledge, knowledge of a person rather than facts. It speaks of a real, deep, full knowledge, a, a thorough knowledge. It speaks of knowing God personally and intimately. It includes an intimate awareness of God's character and will, that you may know him better would really give uh, the proper sense of the meaning of the word. In the Old Testament, the word know was often used of an intimate relationship between a, a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. That's, that's kind of the Old Testament version of this word epigenosis. It means to know deeply, intimately. That's what Paul is calling for. When the Ephesians knew God, they knew the Lord Jesus through faith in him, uh, 
uh, as Lord and Savior, but Paul is praying that they might know him better. Paul wants the Ephesians and all believers to go deeper and deeper in, in, into their knowledge of God and of Christ. I mean, he's emphasizing here the great need of the church. I mean, the wisdom and focus of the world is summed up in two words. Know yourself. And the focus of many, perhaps most Christians, is very often the same. Know yourself. You know, knowing and loving yourself rather than knowing and loving God. And as a result, they're stunted in their Christian growth. As one man said, instead of breathing this life-giving air of heaven, their windows are closed and their doors are shut and they are asphyxiated with their own exhalation. They are breathing over again and again their own breath from which all vitality is gone. I mean, the great need of every believer and of every church, whether it is healthy or not, is knowing Christ. It is having a better, deeper, fuller, more intimate knowledge of Jesus. I mean, this was the cry of Paul's heart in Philippians 3.10. that He said, oh, that I might know him. I mean, Paul had come to faith in Christ 30 years prior to that. But his one great desire was to know Christ more deeply and more intimately. And loved ones, this is the key to all of life. We ought to read the scriptures. We ought to listen to preaching with an eye to know him. We ought to pray this for the church and ourselves. This is, this is how the Apostle Paul prayed. And the greatest blessing that anyone can experience is to know God and and to know Him better every day. I mean, Paul wrote in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I mean, how desperately sad. How desperately sad then that we can acquire so much knowledge in our professional life and we can have so many close friends we know well and yet settle for knowing uh, God, the Lord of glory, and His Son, Jesus Christ, superficially. And there is so much superficiality in the church today. And so, loved ones, whatever else we pray for ourselves and other Christians, we must make absolutely sure that we pray that that we and they may know God better. And the reason this is so important is that we often settle for something so much less, so much less. Some of us settle for very little knowledge. I mean, it's almost like we want to go to heaven ignorantly. Some will settle for a mere knowledge of the Bible, and certainly a knowledge of the Bible is good because the Bible is God's Word and there is no knowledge of God apart from it. Still, although we must know Scripture in itself, this is not the fullness of what God has for us. Other Christians settle for knowledge about God. They might be able to discuss theology. They might be able to discuss the attributes of God, but but it's possible to know a lot about God and to even know a lot of theology and still not even be a Christian. 
I mean, Paul wasn't praying that the Ephesians might come to know more about God, though they no doubt had a great deal more to learn, as we all do. But he was praying that they might know him deeply and intimately. I mean, loved ones knowing about him and truly knowing him, they're completely different. There's all the difference in the world between knowing about someone and actually knowing them. For example, I, I know about John MacArthur. I've read about him and his ministry. I've, I've read many of his books. I've heard him preach. I've visited his church. I've, I've gone to his conferences. I've even spoken to him very briefly on three or four occasions. So I know about him. But I don't really know him. Because to know a person well involves spending quality time with him or her. A meaningful, deep relationship develops when each person reveals himself, his likes and dislikes, his hopes and fears, his, his ambitions and history, his thoughts and, and feelings. I mean, building an intimate relationship is not something that takes place in the course of a day or two. No, it's something that develops over a lifetime. And the knowledge that Paul is talking about here is a deep, personal ever-increasing knowledge of God that develops over a lifetime of walking closely with him. I mean, Paul's main goal in life was to know Christ. And that's an incredible goal to have. But he wanted the Ephesian believers to know him as well. He wanted them to know the one who has lived down here and experienced life to the full and, and tasted its joys and sorrows and, and possibilities and pains. The one who fully understands, loves and cares, encourages and forgives. The, the one who is holy, just, righteous and, and also loving, merciful, gracious, good, patient, kind and helpful. And for us as believers, there could be no greater goal in the world, no, no greater joy than to know Christ more intimately. But that means we have to spend time with him. We have to listen to him. We have to respond to him and talk to him. And as we do, our love for him will grow and we'll begin to be like him. We'll begin to think as he thinks and act as he acts and, and say what he says. And then one day, we're actually going to see him face to face. And the great aim and goal of our lives, loved ones, should be to know him. Not stuffing our heads with knowledge about him, but having a deep, personal, intimate relationship with him. And this kind of personal knowledge of Jesus is what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world. You see, our faith is not one of systems and regulations and, and rituals. Our faith is personal and intimate. We know a person who has changed our lives, and we live in loving fellowship and communion with him. He lives within us by his Holy Spirit, and we can know him better and better as we walk with him day by day because we were given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to give us spiritual excitement, but to bring us to the knowledge of Him. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, suggests that 
that knowing God consists of the following three elements. First, knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. Second, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement in mind, will, and feeling. The believer rejoices when his God is honored and vindicated and feels the acutest distress when he sees God flouted. Equally, the Christian feels shame and grief when convicted of having failed his Lord. Third, he said, knowing God is a matter of grace. It is a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God, as it must be, since God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited all claim on his favor by our sins. And that being the case, Packer concludes, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. And this, of course, is the perspective of Paul in in this opening chapter of Ephesians. When he prays that we might know God precisely because it is God who has first set his love upon us and chose us before the foundation of the world, predestined us for adoption as sons, redeemed us through his blood, and forgiven all our sins according to the riches of his grace, given us an inheritance, and sealed us with his Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Because God has given us such a wealth of spiritual blessings, Paul is praying that he would grant us a deeper personal experiential knowledge of God himself through Jesus Christ, who is the only way to know the Father. It's incredible. And as we come to verse 18, Paul shifts the focus of his prayer slightly, turning from knowledge of God himself to knowledge of those elements of salvation which he has achieved for us. And he makes three requests. That we might know the hope to which he has called us, that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he begins to praise God for his great power in verses 20 to 23. But all of that, Lord willing, is for next time. In closing, you know, if if we're to know God, it doesn't just happen by osmosis. And it isn't something that the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation just works in us as we are completely passive. Not at all. If we're to know God, And we must spend time with him in Bible study, prayer, and meditation. Also sitting under the preaching of God's word. And you cannot get to know a person without spending time with him or her. Nor can you get to know God without spending time with him. Dr. Harry Ironside tells of meeting a a very godly man early in his ministry. The man was actually dying of tuberculosis, and Ironside had gone to visit him. And this man's name was Andrew Frazier. And because of his disease, he could barely speak above a whisper. His lungs were almost gone. And yet he said to Ironside, Young man, you are trying to preach Christ, are you not? And Ironside replied, Yes, I am. Well, Mr. Frazier said, Sit down a little. And let us talk together about the Word of God. 
And he opened his Bible, and until his strength was gone, he opened up one passage after another, teaching truths that, that Ironside at that time had never seen or appreciated. You know, before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or college? And Fraser replied, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. And there with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. And loved ones, that is the secret of knowing God. It is not intelligence, outstanding instruction, or academic degrees. It is time spent with God. It is to people who sit at Jesus' feet that God opens his heart and his word. So let me ask you this morning, are you personally growing in your knowledge of God through Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit reveals him to you through his word? Oh, how often are our Bibles neglected? Spurgeon said to his congregation, he said, uh, uh, many of you have so much, have enough dust on your Bibles to write damnation across the front of them. Are you personally growing in your knowledge of God through Christ as the Holy Spirit reveals him to you through his word? I mean, are, are you spending time with God and his word? And I'm not trying to lay some kind of guilt trip on you. This isn't some kind of legalistic guilt trip, not at all. This is so that you might come to know him in a deeper and more intimate way, and this is the only path. You have to spend time with him. He reveals himself and Christ to us in his word. So are you spending time with God and his word? I mean, is, is that a priority to you? Loved ones, knowing God is not only a, uh, our great privilege, really a privilege beyond imagination. It's our supreme need. As Martin Lloyd-Jones asserted, the quest of your life should be to know God more and more. With Paul, you and I should be able to say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ. Remember, he had been a believer for 30 years at this time. He wasn't talking about gaining him in salvation, but gaining a deeper and more intimate knowledge of him. And loved ones, that should be our goal. Amen. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we... It's your word that
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.